Hey there. Thank you so much for joining us for our Big Time Talker podcast presented by SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. I'm Burke Allen in our studios here in Washington, D.C., and the Big Time Talker podcast available everywhere. You can download and subscribe new episodes every Tuesday at Apple iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts come into your mobile device today. We talked to Kyle Kozad. His new book is Relentless Positivity. He's a, a pretty amazing guy with an amazing story, and we're happy to have him on the show. Kyle, thanks for being here. Hey, Burke, I, I appreciate it. Uh, it's always uh, fun to get out there and tell the story, and I think there's a, an important message for folks to hear, uh, regardless of your circumstance. So uh, uh, thanks for the chance to join you today. You, um, you're very welcome. Your subtitle of the book is A Common Veteran... Uh, battling uncommon odds. Um, there may be just a little bit of false modesty there because you are definitely not a common guy. You've accomplished an awful lot, but but I want to roll it back to the beginning. You were a kid in a city that most people never think about uh, there being people growing up in. You grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada. I did. We moved there when I was about six years old. My, uh, my folks were both educators, so teachers uh, at the junior high level. Uh, and, you know, I was a basketball player. So, uh, you know, grew up as a gym rat and, uh, you know, that turned into some uh, recruiting opportunities and, you know, some kind of some uh, chance meetings. Uh, we had a neighbor uh, who was actually an Air Force pilot out at Nellis Air Force Base. Uh, and he uh, he took me out to the Air Force Base one day, showed me around his squadron. And, uh, and I think I was a sophomore in high school and I, I got this bug. I wanted to be a military pilot, um, had no military connections in my family, but uh, just kind of sparked a flame for me. And, you know, fortunately, I was uh, I was good enough, but not good enough. Uh, I was recruited by uh, the Naval Academy to go play basketball for him. And that was kind of my my ticket into a service academy and then ultimately led to a commission and uh, a ticket down to Pensacola, Florida for flight school. What was it like growing up in, in Las Vegas? Uh, I guess this would have been the 1970s and early 80s. Yeah, 70s, early 80s. Um, you know, Las Vegas is a very different city today. Uh, when I was there, there were probably, um, you know, uh, a dozen major uh, casinos and hotels on the Strip area. Uh, and, you know, Las Vegas was a, a city that had, uh, I think we had 10 uh, major high schools, so Division 4A. Uh, when you go back there today, I think there are 25 high schools. I don't recognize the city, but um, I'll tell you that uh, – with the exception of going to the grocery store uh, and seeing slot machines, it was just like growing up anyplace else uh, uh, as long as you stayed off uh, kind of the strip and, you know, Casino Alley. You know, I, I lived out there and I worked for CBS in the late 90s. And uh, and even since then, the city has doubled in, in population. But I do remember Nellis Air Force Base being a real presence, you know, being you know right outside the city then. Um, and And I wonder if uh, there were a lot of other kids like you that that were sort of enamored by that. You know, geez, I could I could be a navy, naval aviator. Do you remember that being a thing in your high school? So so certainly not. I think I was the anomaly. We had one other guy who uh, received an appointment to West Point, um, but uh, you know. Las Vegas and the state of Nevada is landlocked. Uh, you know, our nearest water is Lake Mead, uh, where uh, folks went uh, fishing for um, striped bass. Um, yep. And so so for me, it was really unusual. And I think, you know, I, I really was an anomaly for, you know, a kid who wanted to join the service, especially, 
you know, when I got the bug for Navy over Air Force, because, you know, if there was a natural attraction for, you know, a kid to have an affinity toward a service in Las Vegas, the Air Force, certainly be the Air Force. Yeah. Yeah. In, in all the years that that you served, uh, favorite duty station, where did you like to live the most? You know, it's, this will sound, um, you know, corny, but, you know, my wife, Amy and I, enjoyed every single place that we lived. We, we felt blessed. We, you know, traveled around the United States. We had an opportunity to go to Canada where we lived in Nova Scotia. I was an exchange instructor for, uh, uh, for almost three years there, but, you know, um, I will say collectively for the two of us, you know, our favorite place that we served and lived was uh, Naval Station Guantanamo Bay, uh, Cuba. Um, and so uh, when I was there, I was a, a brand new one-star admiral. Uh, I was in charge of the joint task force. So detention operations for, uh, you know, the, the uh, men who have been picked up in the battlefield uh, and brought in on uh, terrorist charges. Um, but, you know, the, the, living side of Naval Station Guantanamo was very different than the, uh, I'll call it the, the business side where we, you know, held the detainees. Uh, it was like Mayberry. We knew everybody on the base. It was a tiny grocery store. You only had, you know, three or four restaurants to include one McDonald's that you could go to for dinner. So you got to know everybody and it was safe. Uh, kids ran around. Uh, parents didn't have to worry where they were going. And, you know, I don't, I don't think we locked our house in the in the one year that we were there. So it was really, really a, a, an interesting time for us. Um, being involved in, you know, a, a very uh, zero defect mission for me, um, but also an opportunity for my wife, Amy, you know, to integrate into the community uh, and also kind of feel what it was like to be on deployment at the time, because uh, within the joint task force, uh, I was only one of four officers who was able to bring my family over. That may be the biggest surprise uh, that we're going to hear in this conversation, which will be fantastic, but that the quality of life was great at Gitmo Bay, which I'm sure no one would think of unless you've actually been there. Yeah, I mean, plenty of opportunities. I mean, world-class scuba diving that I never had a chance um, because I was so busy with uh, with work. But, you know, we'd go out and we'd boat on the weekends. Um, you know, they, they actually had a golf course. Uh, and, you know, it was the, the barren desert end of the, the island of Cuba. And so you would take out your little, you know, green two by three uh, piece of sod. Uh, you'd hit your ball off that and uh, <laughs> you'd follow it along. So there was plenty of stuff for people to do. Um, free movies at uh, an outdoor lyceum theater. Uh, and so it was really a community focus and, you know, very family centric. Kyle Kozad is our guest on the Big Time Talker podcast. His new book is Relentless Positivity, a common veteran battling uncommon odds. Um, when people say, hey, this book that's coming out in December, what's it about? What do you tell them? What's the elevator pitch? Yeah, I, I think the elevator pitch is this has evolved since I first started it. Um, but, you know, really, as, as I did the final edits, as I read back through this, um, a lot of people jumped to the conclusion that, uh, you know, since I suffered a spinal cord injury uh, 40 years ago, you know, this is all about, you know, teaching people a one, two, three process to, you know, help in, in their healing and reintegration. But, you know, really, you know, this book, I think, talks to people uh, of any circumstance. So in my circumstance, I suffered a, you know, a life altering spinal cord injury uh, on the 16th of March, 2018. But, but other folks have circumstances in their life that, you know, are difficult to work through, whether that's uh, maybe you're having a tough time making a car payment or the kids are struggling in school or you're having a relationship issue or something more serious like a spinal cord injury or some sort of cancer diagnosis. So, you know, I just kind of share my story on, you know, the things that motivated me, the things that inspired me and the things that helped 
me push myself to go much further than any of my doctors ever said I would be able to go. I saw a, uh, an article, I think it was in the Navy Times, and they talked about you, and I think the headline was something along the lines of, you know, here's a guy who leads from a wheelchair. Um, and I'm sure that was not in the cards and, and not in the, the plans for you, but, but I do want to ask about your injury. You, you were injured, if I understand this correctly, in the most uh, mundane of ways. I mean, you were serving, but you, you got hurt by walking across your kitchen? Yeah, that, that's close. So, um, you know, Navy Times doesn't always get it right. Uh, it was <laughs> it was a household injury. Um, and uh, and quite frankly, you know, I, I have little, if any, recollection, but the best I can piece it together. We lived in a, a historic home that was built in uh, 1830s. It was burned down during the Civil War and then rebuilt. And so it had very narrow, thin stairs that went up to our uh, master bedroom. Uh, and a very low banister. And I, I stand six foot four uh, on a good day. Uh, and as I was shutting off the lights and went up, I must have lost my balance. And I, I probably fell down three or four steps. But, you know, the impact, uh, you know, was was just perfect enough or imperfect enough that I broke uh, two vertebrae, completely smashed them uh, and suffered a severe spinal cord uh, trauma um, that uh, they, they categorize as an incomplete because it didn't sever the spinal cord injury, but the damage uh, was uh, irrevocable and, uh, and permanent for me. So no feeling below my uh, waist. When you wake up from that and you get that news, can you tell me what, what goes through your mind immediately? Yeah. Um, so, so I had a couple different phases while I was in uh, the ICU. And, and I remember distinctly waking up uh, after the surgery, you know, coming out of the fog. And, you know, before my doctor had even come in, you know, I, I knew that something was not right. Something was broken uh, below my waist. And, you know, so, so, you know, my mind races forward. Here I am. I had served for uh, over 32 years in the Navy. I had risen to the rank a two-star admiral. And, you know, just to put that in context, probably less than 5% of my peers had been able to, you know, progress that high in the, in the food chain. Um, but, you know, I, I immediately went to medical retirement. How am I going to support my family? I'm the breadwinner. Uh, we're going to have to, you know, move into a one-story house. Um, I'm never going to be able to do the things I used to do. Uh, and you know, the worst thing for me was I'm going to have to spell, sell my hot rod uh, and uh, get a minivan that I'll drive around with in the rest of my life. And so, you know, that that's kind of the the weird uh, immediate thoughts that you have. And then. Um, you know, about two days later, this is, I, I think I really credit this as the first stage of my relentless positivity. Um, my nurses, uh, you know, they would come in every four hours. Uh, and, you know, I had a stack of pills that I had to take. And, you know, as, as I, you know, became more lucid and aware, you know, I would ask, what's this for? What's that for? And I had, you know, the typical painkillers, blood thinners, you know, the things that would make me heal. Um, but also, uh, you know, the one that really struck me was an antidepressant. And I, I asked the nurse, I said, you know, what, so what's this for? Do I have symptoms? Do I have everything? And, you know, she, she quickly said, uh, um, she said, well, and then she paused. Uh, and then she was very uh, guarded in the way she talked about this. She said, people who suffer a life-changing injury like the one you've suffered, you know, will, will quite frequently go into a very dark place. And, you know, there will be uh, thoughts of self-harm uh, and maybe even suicide. And, you know, that, that was kind of a slap in my face that, you know, my life had changed and I realized this. 
but it wasn't over. You know, I, I still felt inside that, you know, number one, you know, you don't have to worry about me with those dark places. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm going to turn this around, you know, better than it was before. And so, you know, I, I really made a decision that day that, you know, I could either lay in bed and I could feel sorry for myself uh, and for the next 50 years ask, you know, over and over again, why me, God, why me? Um, but instead, I chose to, you know, look for the the, the silver lining, you know, what, what's my new purpose? What can I do? Uh, what can I show people? How can I make a positive difference in the lives of others? So uh, that kind of started, uh, you know, the whole um, surge of relentless positivity following my accident. The book is Relentless Positivity. Cal Kozad is the author uh, from Ballast Books, available in bookstores everywhere in December. Uh, a great Christmas gift uh, to bring some some positivity to someone that you know that might need a little bit of an uplift. Um, what was the biggest change for you when this happened that you needed to wrap your arms around, maybe wrap your head around? Yeah. So, so obviously the, you know, um, the inability to stand, to walk. Um, I, I remember uh, like it was yesterday when my, uh, my neurosurgeon, my wife came in and he had his whole team with, with him. And, uh, you know, he, he told me what I kind of expected to know, but he, he really told it in somber terms. He said, you're, you're never going to be able to get out of a wheelchair. You'll be in a wheelchair for your entire life. You won't be able to walk, stand, and, you know, essentially life as you knew it was over. So, you know, for me, you know, number one, accepting that if, if accepting is the right word. Um, but, but then, you know, eventually, you know, here I was a, a very senior officer. I was fit, uh, I was athletic. I, I love the outdoors. Um, and, you know, so now, you know, when I walked into the room, um, you know, quite frankly, I, I drew attention and, sure, you know, now here I am in a wheelchair and it was very uncomfortable for me to accept the fact that, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, use the words like disability, use the words like paraplegic uh, and, and to get back out in public in, in a wheelchair. Um, but, uh, you know, we had a president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, who uh, who was in a wheelchair. He was uh, a polio victim. And, um, you know, as, as I did some reading, as I talked to some folks, you know, you, you rarely see FDR uh, in his wheelchair. Um, you often see him behind his desk in the Oval Office. You often see him, you know, sitting in a chair and they'd move the wheelchair. And I just got to a point where I said, Hey, hey, this is me. This is the new me, the new normal. Uh, so I've got to get beyond that and, you know, get back out and do the things I love to do. And uh, that was that was hard, but it certainly wasn't insurmountable. You know, I, I shared with you uh, off the air that, that my father was paraplegic and uh, was a Navy guy. Um, he was a Golden Gloves boxer as a kid, so he was pretty athletic. And and you said you went to the Naval uh, Academy on an athletic scholarship. Do you think that the fact that you were you know, fit, athletic, and then were you know, two-star admiral, that, that may have made it tougher for you uh, than had you been a, a more sedentary, uh, you know, guy who had a desk job. I, I think you're right. And so the, the uh, athlete portion of that, um, you know, plays both ways. So that probably did, you know, lead to my initial trepidation about getting out there in public again, you know, who's looking at me. Right. Um, but, but I also attribute both that 
And, you know, the culture I grew up in naval aviation, and I, I, I often refer to my injury as a, you know, a simple change in my flight plan uh, of life. Um, you know, as, as naval aviators, you know, you always plan for your mission, but the moment you take off, something happens, whether it's weather, it's air traffic control, giving you new vectors or a new flight plan, and you just have to adapt to that. You adapt, you overcome, uh, and you move on. And, and that's kind of what my injury was. So uh, a lot of the things, uh, and I have some other you know, motivations in my life that I'd love to talk about. But, you know, naval aviation really gave me the fuel to be tough, to be gritty, uh, and to have the resilience to push forward from this. And and that's why, Burke, you know, all the proceeds for Relentless Positivity are going to go right back to the National Naval Aviation Museum, you know, where we can, uh, you know, tell the stories of, of real heroes, not not guys like Kyle Kozad, but real heroes who have contributed, to the, you know, it, through their service to their country. And I call these folks uh, very routinely um common people who otherwise do uncommon things in the service of their country. Let's talk about the museum for a second. You are in Pensacola, Florida, open to the public. So the museum is open to the public. Uh, we're struggling, uh, you know, with uh, some base access issues. So uh, to, to distill that down for everybody, in order to get to the museum where we're fully open to the public, you have to have a military ID card. And so, you know, that precludes about 550,000 people uh, within the general public who would otherwise love to come and who have come in previous years. And so that's a, a big Navy policy decision that uh, we work on every day because, you know, it's, it's such a magical place. I, I am probably biased, but I'll say it's the most amazing aviation museum in the world. Uh, you can go up, you can touch each aircraft, you can, you know, get up close and personal. And, you know, we've got about 150 airplanes uh, just within our campus that are uh, immaculately restored back to their flying condition uh, that, uh, you know, people can just go and, and learn and, and be a part of history, not only history that's happened in the past, but think about, you know, the, the history that lies in front of us. Remember the TV show with James Brolin that uh, was was set there at Pensacola, and and uh, I wonder if you can tell me what uh, and of course Top Gun Maverick huge movie this summer. What what do people get wrong about uh, military aviators? What do they get wrong? Um, you know, there's and so part of this is right, part of it's wrong. Uh, but uh, you know, you know we just by nature of the job, you've got to be tough. Uh, we you know we deploy. I think I've spent nearly five years out of my 35-year career uh, on extended deployment. So you pack up, you go away from the family, uh, you might be able to talk, you might not be able to talk. And so, you know, part of the mission is uh, you've got to just be able to turn it on and you've always got to be at your best. And I think that's what the public sees in naval aviators. They're tough, they're gritty, they go out, they, they do their job. But, you know, the thing you don't see is um, you know, we're, we're also family people, whether you're, you know, a guy or a gal uh, wearing the uniform and flying, you know, we go home to our family and we want to spend as much time with them as we can based on all that separation. So that's probably the thing that I don't know if they get wrong, but they certainly don't see as much uh, in, uh, in the movies. Kyle Kozad is our guest. The book is Relentless Positivity from Ballast Books, available in bookstores everywhere and online uh, in December. Where can folks get a copy of the book? I, I read somewhere you can you can get an autograph uh, inscribed copy, which would be a great gift. Maybe if, if you had a family member that served in the military, how can they do that, Kyle? Absolutely. So so you can go to Amazon. That's the easy button. Um, but uh, I'm excited because we just received our first shipment of books here at the museum. And if you go to navalaviation.com, 
that'll take you to our uh, museum flight deck store. Uh, and uh, um, for, uh, I think it's $28.95, uh, I'll sign every copy. Uh, and if you pay a little extra, I'm more than happy to write an individual personalized message uh, to whoever you'd like. So um, do that. Uh, the books are here. Uh, we're going to try to get all our signature books uh, out within this week and then uh, start working on the personalized copies soon. So uh, you'll be sure to have those in time for uh, uh, the Christmas holidays. And that website again is navalaviation.com. Yes, sir. That's correct. Very good. And all the proceeds again from the book benefit the Naval Aviation Museum. So uh, a great cause. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, motivation. And that's a big part of the book. The book, uh, of course, called Re Relentless Positivity. What else motivates you? So, so there were there were probably three things that really motivated me through you know my recovery and uh, um, you know number one was my faith my faith in God uh, that was a really strong part of this just being able to you know lean on something bigger than me that you know would would help me when I, when I needed that um, but also my family um, my wife Amy was by my side every you know literally step of the way uh, as we went through physical therapy through the hospitalization uh, and and my entire family I. I I grew up in a family where, um, you know, the the biggest dissatisfactor in one's life was when we when we disappointed our father. And you know, I didn't want to disappoint my family, so that was you know fuel for my motivation to work hard and you know overcome what the doctor told me. And you know, another component of that family piece, um, my youngest son uh, is a naval aviator. He flies helicopters, and he uh, he came to see me as soon as he found out about the accident. But you know, he had to turn around in two days because his squadron was going on deployment. So uh, this was Dan's very first deployment. Uh, he headed out. We wouldn't see him for seven months. And uh, despite the fact that the doctors told my wife and I that I'd never get out of a wheelchair, I'd never even stand again, she promised him that uh, you go fly your missions, you do the job that the Navy trained you to do, and you be safe. I'll take care of your dad. And when you get home in seven months, he's going to walk across the flight line to greet you. And, you know, so I almost, you know, got sick to my stomach saying, mom, you can't make a promise like that because uh, it, it's not going to happen. But uh, that certainly was a motivator for me to, you know, as I got into physical therapy and um, this one will, you know, I call this my wild card, but um, on my second day of physical therapy, uh, there's a large clunky machine. So I'd get down to physical therapy in a, um, a hospital wheelchair uh, and, and they hooked me up to this machine. And so it, you know, had belts around my waist, belts around my shoulder, around my chest, and it physically lifted me out of my wheelchair. Uh, and, you know, given the fact that I had nothing to do with that, I was just along for the ride. But, you know, for the first time since my accident in a couple of weeks, I was standing tall. I was six foot four again. Uh, and immediately, you know, I told my wife, I said, this is going to sound crazy, but I don't want to retire. I want to go back on active duty and I want to finish my, you know, last two and a half years. Uh, wow. And so that was a motivator for me. I wanted to return to full duty. And, uh, you know, thanks to the Navy, um, we had some leaders in very high places that, uh, you know, gave me the opportunity to do that. And that Navy Times article that you you read, uh, and I think it was titled The Admiral Who Leads from a Wheelchair, that was unprecedented. But to be able to do that, you know, proved to me and to others that, uh, you know, the Navy didn't want me for my mobility. They wanted me, you know, for what I had up here in my brain and what yep, I had yep. down here in my heart. Let me ask you about your faith a little bit. Um, when someone goes through what you went through, you tend to see folks, Kyle, go in one direction or the other. 
you know, it's a, as you said, a why me and, and you, you curse God for letting this happen to you and, and for jacking up everything. And then there are another subset of people that really lean on their faith to bring them through it. What is it that caused you to do the latter rather than the former? Any idea? Um, you know, I, I think it's, you know, the, the, the person uh, that I grew up to be, you know, we, we went to church as young kids, um, you know, I, I found God again when I was at the Naval Academy and, you know, it was just, you know, part of my identity. But but I, I think the other piece there is, you know, just that optimism. And again, uh, you know, that culture in naval aviation when, you know, you when you get that change to a flight plan, you don't quit. Uh, you, you turn and you look and you say, OK, how are we going to make this happen? And, uh, you know, you, you adapt and you overcome to the circumstances you've been given. And, you know, I, I, I really quickly came to the realization that, Hey, there's something else out there. When that door, you know, one door closed and, you know, my, my able-bodied being that I used to know uh, went away, you know, there's something out there that, you know, I can, I can benefit from, I can help others benefit from. Uh, and that was really the direction that I, that I took it. And, you know, there was never really uh, a second thought about that. It was just something that was, you know, natural for me. Okay, here's where I am. What can I do with this? How can I help other people learn from what I'm going through right now? So Kyle, you know, obviously you're a tough guy. You're a retired rear admiral and, and naval aviator. Um, I'll tell you, as, as a guy who respects our military but did not have the opportunity to serve, uh, when you told me the story about you being able to get across that tarmac and greet your son, um, who is, a, a, you know, a helicopter aviator in the service, um, I imagine there were lots of tough guys like you uh, standing around who got a little misty-eyed um, it's a pretty emotional story. And I wonder when you meet other, uh, uh, paralyzed veterans, other vets that, that have been hurt in the service, you know, what do they tell you about their backgrounds? What, what stories do you hear from those guys? Cause you're now you're, you're in a whole different world of influence. Yeah. You know, it, it's, and, and, and again, that was another one of the, the, uh, motivations to write this book. Um, I, I got involved in uh, uh, adaptive sports through the Navy Wounded Warrior Program um, just about uh, probably 10 months after my accident. Uh, okay. and, and that was the first time, uh, you know, when, when I went through physical therapy, there were a lot of stroke victims. Uh, there were a lot of folks, uh, you know, who had other, you know, physical problems that they were working through, but very few uh, um, spinal cord injury victims. And so, you know, as I got involved in adaptive sports, I was able to meet others you know, who through, you know, whatever circumstances, uh, a lot of motorcycle accidents that, uh, you know, led to paralysis, but, you know, just, it, it was, I think more than me inspiring them or them inspiring me, it was a mutual support network. You could ask questions, you know, how do you do this? How do you, how do you get onto an airplane? You know, think about that right. sometime. Right. How many people in a wheelchair, uh, a rigid wheelchair, like the one I use, uh, have you seen going through the airport? And, the, you know, I was struck the very first time I resumed my travel, uh, how very few people you, you really see. And so, you know, my opportunity to interact with other injured veterans started off as mutual support, but has turned into, you know, really an opportunity to mentor folks. 
um, you know, whether they're young, whether they're my age, you know, 60 year old men who have gone through the same thing, you know, it's an opportunity to tell them my story. Hey, this is what I did here. Are some resources that are available. My wife, Amy, uh, does the same thing with uh, mothers or spouses uh, because they tend to end up being, you know, permanent caregivers uh, for folks with injuries like ours. Uh, and so, you know, it just really expanded the opportunity again, to make a difference for other people um, through that network of, uh, you know, folks who are going through something similar. You know, it's a, a million little logistical things that you have to figure out whenever uh, you're in a wheelchair. And having grown up in a family with, with two parents who were in wheelchairs, uh, it, it struck me all the little workarounds that that they figured out. Um, what is it that that has been the biggest sort of you know workaround or change that you've had to make uh, to be able to to maintain your life? I, I'm assuming you drive now, drive to work every day. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, um, you know, through my physical therapy, I, I was, uh, my wife calls me a step counter um, because I started and I can remember the, the first day <laughs> they pulled me out of a wheelchair and I stood up on a walker. And, and so step one is I've already proven the doctor wrong. I'm standing up uh, yep. and I, I, and think about, you know, the, the physical act of walking, how you have to, you know, we take all these things for granted, but I was like a two-year-old kid, you know, how you have to shift the weight, how you have to pivot a hip, how you have to throw. And again, I've got, you know, whatever it is, 40 pounds of, you know, lifeless meat uh, dangling uh, below my torso uh, that I got to figure out how to position. And so I learned to do that. And, you know, one step turned into 10, 10 turned into 20. And every time I would go to physical therapy, you know, I would push myself if, if nothing more, take one more step than I had in the previous session. And, and so, you know, that turned to a life where today um, I exclusively use a walker inside of our house. Uh, so I, I don't use the wheelchair. Um, I, uh, I walk to my pickup truck. I've got hand controls in the truck. I drive to work. Uh, I get up here to my office. And um, again, I, I'm a little slower than I used to be, but uh, that's the only difference. And so um, I, I find myself relatively normal, but you have to be a problem solver because, um, you know, I, I was at my daughter's house for uh, Thanksgiving. You know, it's it's an older place. And, and so the doors aren't wide enough, uh, you know, for a wheelchair to go through. They aren't wide enough for my walker. And so, you know, I, just the, the act of getting into the bathroom, I'd have to fold my walker up. I'd have to stand myself against the door, pull it in, shut the door. Uh, in, in pretty confined quarters. But uh, um, again, that's another example of that adaptive and overcome mentality. The book is Relentless Positivity. Cal Cosette is the author. Subtitle is A Common Veteran Battling Uncommon Odds. Nothing common about Cal Cosette. Um, you spent some time here in my town uh, in Washington, D.C., and, uh, and you talk about this a little bit. You actually worked in the White House Situation Room. Can you paint that picture for me a little bit? I, I did. So, um, you know, for uh, everybody's clarification, the White House Situation Room is uh, in the, I'll call it the basement of the West Wing. Uh, so yep. right under the vice president's office. And, uh, you know, I, I had completed one assignment and, you know, the, the Navy was looking to place me in something that would, you know, keep me competitive for future things down the road. And, you know, this just happened to be a random opportunity that popped up. And uh, so um, I, uh, I did several interviews. I was selected uh, General Jones 
uh, what James Jones was the uh, national security advisor at the time. And uh, I came on board uh, during my first year. I was the director of operations uh, in the Situation Room, and I worked for a gentleman who uh, uh, had previously worked at the Central Intelligence Agency. And so, you know, we, we ran the daily schedule. We trained our watch officers. Uh, we supported senior staff meetings and, you know, highly classified uh, uh, gatherings that the president would hold with his National Security Council. Uh, and during my second year, I was elevated to, to the senior director position. So, um, you know, it was, it was just one of those uh, chance career assignment opportunities. It was completely nonpartisan. I served uh, under the Obama administration and, you know, happened to be there at some pretty exciting times um, to include the, uh, the Arab Spring and uh, uh, most notably uh, the uh, bin Laden mission that uh, actually took public enemy number one out. What do you remember about that time? Because that's a, a time that, that all of America was, you know, we were all glued to our televisions when uh, the president came out and, and talked about this. And then, you know, hearing the story afterwards, what was it like being on the inside? What do you remember? Yeah, the, the inside, and, you know, I, I think it goes back, you know, six to maybe eight months prior to the actual event and the announcement that President Obama made that night. And it was the preparation and the briefings and the plannings. Um, you know, it was, uh, without a doubt, the, the most heavily guarded secret in the White House. Uh, and so there were just a handful of folks who were completely read in and knew exactly what was happening. Um, I, you know, even as the guy who would help set things up. So when the CIA would come over, uh, um, John Brennan was the director of uh, um, counterterrorism uh, and national homeland security at the time. He came into my office one day and said, uh, there's, you know, a team coming over from the agency and they've got uh, a model that they need help with uh, to get it into the conference room. And so, you know, I coordinated with Secret Service. We got that in the room um, and we had, you know, shut off all the cameras, shut off all the speakers. So it was uh, completely an internal meeting. Uh, nobody outside the conference room could hear or see. Uh, and I helped them and they opened up this model. Uh, and it was clearly some sort of compound in the Middle East. Uh, wasn't marked, wasn't labeled, um, but, you know, that was really the first time I had seen Abbottabad. Uh, and, uh, you know, as, as the, the months went on, subsequent meetings, you know, very secretive, very sensitive, very close hold. Uh, and, and really, you know, I think the first time we realized what exactly what was going on was when uh, uh, the young Air Force one-star general came and, you know, set up a bunch of commu communications equipment uh, downrange that uh, Admiral McRaven could communicate with the national security staff with that night. So uh, uh, it was incredible to watch the process and the professionalism of, you know, the decision that, uh, you know, was ultimately made to go in and take out uh, Osama bin Laden. For those of us that haven't served before, uh, you know, you're in the middle of something like that uh, and, and your work at, at Guantanamo Bay. Um, there are things that that you hear about at work that you're pretty sworn to secrecy on. And living here in D.C., I see this a lot with my neighbors who you, you, you see them at the soccer field and say, what do you do for a living? And they say, well, I can't really tell you. I work for the government. Um, <laughs> is it was it tough for you to not be able to share things with with your wife, with Amy? Um, how do you navigate that whole thing on a personal level? Yeah, I mean, it becomes second nature, quite honestly, you know, especially if you grow up in a world where you, you work with highly classified um, information all the time. And, you know, for us, you know, we would routinely try to set up, you know, date night on a, on a Friday or a Wednesday and maybe take the Metro in, meet me uh, uh, at the corner of Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, and uh, we'd go out and grab a bite to eat. And she knew when I said, 
hey, not going to be able to make it tonight. You might want to watch the news that there was something going on. And so that was about, you know, the best code I could give her. Uh, and then she could watch, you know, the national news and, you know, learn about what she was, uh, she was classified to learn about, uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, never really an issue of, um, you know, hey, this, this is really, you know, awesome. And I wish I could tell you about it, but uh, um, never really an issue there. Hey, I know this is not um, in your bailiwick, uh, except that you deal with it personally. But I want to ask you a little bit about your experience with, uh, with healthcare for veterans. Mm -hmm. It makes the news a lot and uh, not always, frankly, not generally in a good way. What was your experience with, with, with your own uh, veterans healthcare? And and, uh, where do you think there might be room for improvement? Yeah. So, so I, I'm going to start off by saying um, Dennis McDonough was uh, the White House chief of staff um, when I was at the White House. Now he's the secretary of Veterans Affairs. Right. Uh, and I, I think he's done an incredible job. It's it's certainly, you know, the VA is a thankless system um, with hundreds of thousands of veterans involved. But I will tell you that uh, I have a spinal cord injury specialist doctor who is my primary care physician here in Pensacola. I also uh, go down to Tampa, Florida at the uh, spinal cord injury hospital. So it's a specialized facility, you know, for spinal cord injury victims. Uh, and the, the care that I've got, the responsiveness that each one of my doctors and their teams have provided uh, is second to none. It's better than anything I received in the military healthcare system. So um, I, for, for every bad story you hear, um, I hope I can turn that story around and tell something that's much more positive because I've had nothing but good experiences within the VA system. Do you think, Kyle, uh, just to play devil's advocate for a minute, do you think a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, retired rear admiral uh, is on your business card? Um, it, it's actually not on my business card. Uh, <laughs> I, I try to avoid that, but you know, I, I'm sure that that makes a bit of a difference for probably for the first year I was in the VA system. Um, you know, I, I had randomly talked to another doc and he goes, Oh no, you should be seeing, you know, Dr. Such and such because she's a spinal cord injury expert and she'll give you much better care. Uh, and, and so, yes, I think there's an element to that, but, uh, um, again, I like to think that everybody has, you know, that similar opportunity for, you know, the world class treatment that any veteran, whether you served for five years or 35 years, like I did, uh, really deserves to have. People have misconceptions about uh, the military. And, you know, as, as time goes on, uh, there are less and less rank and file Americans who serve, you know, just a, a generation ago, my father and all my uncles on both sides of the family all served one of the four branches. And, and you see that less and less now. What what do you think the biggest misconception, Kyle, is that the people have about our military that, that have not served or maybe don't know someone who has served? Yeah. So, so number one, I think there's, there's an element of influence and I'll use the national Naval aviation museum as an example, you know, right now I I had mentioned that, uh, you know, the general public has a really tough time getting in here. And quite frankly, those are the people that need to come and see a museum like this to be inspired toward, you know, not a career necessarily, but uh, an opportunity to serve their country in some way. And, and I can't tell you how many people, you know, come to me and say, Hey, my kids went to that museum and now they want to go, they want to enlist. They want to be an air crewman. They want to, they want to go to the Naval Academy or, uh, or apply for an ROTC scholarship. And so, you know, it's, 
you know, it's a diminishing lack of influence to educate people on what the military is all about. Um, the, the folks who are most inclined to serve come from military families. My son's a good example of that. He grew up in a military environment. He would, he would come on board the USS Kitty Hawk. And, you know, when we had the air wing on board, when we pull in as a, as a three-year-old, he couldn't say all the words, but he could tell you exactly which aircraft was which. Um, and so he grew up in that world and, you know, he knew that's what he wanted to do. And so it's, you know, just this opportunity to influence and educate folks who aren't otherwise exposed to that as they grow up, I think, you know, that's a really key element that we need to, you know, continue to continue to push. There's a lot of talk in, in this town in DC that uh, it's the lowest number of veterans that are serving in, in the United States Congress now. And, and, and I think uh, a lot of folks would, would say that's not necessarily a good thing. Would you agree? Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've had a chance to go up to the Hill and, you know, talk with, and, and you know, I typically will focus on, you know, prior serving uh, military officers, uh, especially as we talk about base access and, and opening issues, but, you know, there, there's a balance, just like the three branches of service uh, or three branches of, uh, um, you know, the executive judicial, uh, you know, it's, it's an opportunity for diverse um, patterns of thought, diverse experience to come together because, uh, just because you're a businessman doesn't necessarily mean you understand this. Just because you're a lawyer doesn't necessarily mean you you have a, a great grasp of another concept. And just because you're a retired military officer or a former serving military officer doesn't mean you're an expert on all things military. So I think that diversity is really, really important, you know, to give us the, you know, really a cross section of what our culture is like. So what do, what do you and I need to do to get the museum open to the public? Who do I got to call? So, uh, you know, talk to your senator, talk to your congressman, because, you know, our museum here is a national museum. And, um, you know, we're we're working hard. I spend a lot of time, you know, advocating and we've got support at just about every level. But there are some um, I'm just going to say it. There are some policy wonks out there uh, and some folks who are probably risk adverse. Uh, to allow the general public back onto, you know, quite frankly, a museum that belongs to them. Um, yep. So, you know, we continue to push that and everything and anything the public can do, uh, whether you're a, a resident of the state of Florida or not, uh, is an important next step. Make sure that they know how important this is to, to you all. Where do you see yourself in five years? What do you want to do next? You've accomplished a hell of a lot. What's next for Kyle? Yeah, well, certainly, uh, um, my work here at the Museum Foundation isn't done until uh, we get, you know, a million people that are able to come back through the doors uh, without a second thought. So I'll continue to push there. Um, I, I really do, Bert, you know, have a passion for getting out and telling my story. And, you know, I, as we talked about, uh, you know, prior to coming on air, you know, I, I go out and I do some public speaking. and I just tell the story because, you know, I, I think it's important for people to, to hear, uh, regardless of your circumstance. And I've had really positive feedback. But, uh, you know, I, I'm uh, involved uh, with a, a nonprofit organization in Birmingham, Alabama called Lakeshore Foundation. It's a, a world-class Paralympic training facility. And, um, you know, I, I certainly love the mission that they have there. I don't, don't see myself moving from Pensacola, but, you know, just trying to help veterans, trying to help veterans, you know, with disabilities, uh, you know, achieve anything and everything that they want to achieve in life and not be held back by the words uh, and the opinions that you can't do something. I love it. It's an inspiring story. I appreciate you sharing it with us today. Thanks for being here. 
Well, thanks for uh, having me as your guest. I appreciate what uh, you all do. And um, hopefully, uh, you know, the story resonates with folks. And, uh, you know, regardless of circumstance, whether it's, you know, teaching your youngster, you know, what it really means to grow up and be tough and, you know, not feel like you're a victim to society uh, or somebody who's going through something pretty significant in life. I think, you know, there are uh, there are portions of the book that uh, will really resonate with everyone. It's an inspirational story, inspirational guy, Kyle Kozad, our guest today, the new book, uh, is available now, Relentless Positivity. Uh, you can pre-order it on Amazon and lock it in, or you can go to navalaviation.com, go to the store there and get an autographed and personalized copy. Proceeds go to the Naval Aviation Museum. Kyle Kozat, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you to our sponsor, speakermatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers Bureau. If you're a platform speaker like Kyle Kozad, maybe you're a, a meeting planner who needs a speaker, you can find one another at speakermatch.com. From our studios here in Washington, D.C., I'm Burke Allen. Thank you so much for listening. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody. <laughs>